Now, in summary, we understand that the scheme of the enemy to oppress the sun has been as old as the human race itself. We looked at how he came to tempt Adam uh, and Eve and how he approached them with an attack upon their sonship, beginning with basic things like food and proceeding to some entrapment based upon the attempt to sow confusion as to who their, what their nature truly was and what their relationship to God truly was. That, that approach was built upon and expanded until Christ came and then again in the temptations of Jesus we see essentially the same familiar approach. Command that stones be made to bread because you're hungry. So an appeal to the flesh, an appeal to a legitimate appetite I might add, because if you've been hungry for 40 days, if you've been fasting 40 days, you will be ravenously hungry. So it it isn't that the temptations are in and of themselves uh, uh, unexplainable, it's not that at all. It is that they're like barbed hooks. If If you ingest it, it will trap you. It's key to understand that because the devil seems quite reasonable. And so when Jesus confronted him and of course the attack was very directly on the sonship of Christ, if you are the Son of God, was the, was the twin approaches for, first, for the first temptation and the second temptation. And the third was, as I've characterized, one, a temptation with the gloves off. So the idea being, look, I'm really in power here and you have no alternative except to acknowledge my strategy of rule by which I've entrapped all mankind. That is the word hegemony. It's the way that you you control and entrap so people have to do your will. There's so much uh, I could say about these things. Um, But moving right to the point, this learned methodology, this original methodology that the enemy has employed uh, has been the consistent theme of everything the enemy has done, including how he has built this kingdom called the cosmos or uh, uh, the kingdom of darkness. It's not that it's actually flooded with darkness, physical darkness, it's that it obscures the light of revelation and the glory of God, so much so that the purpose for which we were put as human beings, put in the earth, is obscured. 
because the sun, you see, is the radiance of his Father's glory. Darkness is an obscuring, a cloaking of the sun so that he cannot put on display the Father's glory. Well, the Father's glory, frankly, is how the appearing of the Father in you reveals the goodness of God's nature, His mercy, His compassion, His salvation, His kindness, all of the rest of His full, the full range of His personality. Darkness has you focused on just how you survive, provision and protection. It was exactly what he offered Adam and Eve, what Satan offered Adam and Eve, and it was was a successful entrapment. It entrapped Adam and Eve. For the entrapment to fully capture human beings, it would have meant that the Saviour Himself would have been so cloaked in the darkness of the enemy's schemes. After trying the first two things, if you are the Son of God, command that the stones be made bread. So he starts at the lowest level, which is the human concern for enough bread in his stomach, for food. When that didn't work, he tried to present him against a religious background, hoping that would attract him. But that too was darkness. To define the sun by religious terms is darkness. You can take him to the pinnacle of the temple, but if if all that is, is a predetermined religious identity so that the sun is shown by association to religion, religion is the craft of Satan it's a substitute, it's the blinding effect, it keeps you from the reality of walking with God. I, I can't tell you how outraged I am when I hear the highest levels of religious leaders in the biggest denominations say, well, you know, we can't ever know God, Um, it's foolish to suggest who do we think we are that we could say we know God or God talks to us. Do these idiots not realize that you were created with a spirit out of God, same same as God's own nature, so that God could talk to you? But they're so consumed by their religious positioning they're on the pinnacle of the temple and to these ones the temptation to act out of their religious framework is irresistible and if you follow their lead, you will fall to your death. I don't want to say any more about it though uh, there's much more that can be said about it. Finally the enemy comes in his torment of in his attempt to capture the sun, to cloak him in, in darkness by fear. That's when he shows his whole hand, and it seems so impossible. 
it seems so inescapable. His dominance, his hegemony is so thorough, so complete, so entrapping, so enslaving that the rational response is to say, okay, I'll fall down and worship you. Now those are the processes that the enemy has used since time immemorial. Those are exactly the processes he'll continue to employ. He has too much invested in them and he does not have an alternative. So everything about the end of the age concerning the, the, the efforts that the enemy is making to, to shroud the mature son in darkness so he cannot reflect the glory of his father's nature, is, everything the enemy has done is based upon these pylons, his entire kingdom sits upon this foundation and, it's, and that foundation as far as he is concerned is inescapable. Now, the descriptions of this that the enemy has done in the book of Revelation, the descriptions of those are the kingdoms of this world, the seven heads and ten horns of the beast. That's what he is known for. This is simply how these earlier trials, Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus in the wilderness, it's just how they have matured. They've matured to this extent. So that, for example, you can't buy or sell apart from receiving the mark of the beast. So it's uh, the, the seven heads uh, representing seven systems and the seven horns representing, and the ten horns representing the power of these systems invested in individuals who are like kings, their intent is to bring in to this control everybody including the mature sons of God. It's the full-blown thing, whereas before it has existed partially and in developmental stages, now it's fully ready and the enemy's proud and he's parading. Right? Now, certain ones have said, looking at how thoroughly the enemy has planned to dominate human beings and concluding that there is no escape from these systems because they believe, you see, that the kingdom of heaven is a future occurrence. It does not exist contemporaneously with the kingdom of darkness. So they, they look forward to going to heaven and be, quote, safe in the kingdom of heaven in heaven. So with that mindset, you see, they have interpreted the scriptures which do not remotely support the notion, as we'll see in a moment, they've interpreted the scriptures to say 
that when it really gets terrible, we will get out of here, we'll be raptured out. Now let me point out that the theory of the rapture is a, is a new thing. Let me talk about the rapture first and then we'll come back to the theory of the rapture, who, who thought it up and how it, was, uh, how it was foisted upon people and how fearful religious men who also saw opportunity to put it out in, gen- in the general population for consumption agreed to do so and distorted the scriptures. But let's start with the distortion of Scripture. So there are essentially two passages in the Scriptures that are used to talk about the rapture. The first is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and we'll start at verse 13. Now here's what it says, Paul speaking to the Thessalonians says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So his premise in speaking about it is the desire to inform the Thessalonians about those believers who had already died lest the living believers are sorrowful as those who have no hope. So essentially this is talking about the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about when will the dead be raised, all right? Keep that in mind because that is the context. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who are asleep in Jesus. So he refers now to the fact that all believers, particularly believers in in, uh, uh, Thessalonica, had already accepted, was the Greeks would call it, Thessaloniki. Um, He said, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, what's the point? We believe Jesus died and rose again. Therefore what? Even so will God bring with Him those who fall asleep in Christ. It's pretty obvious that he's talking about the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in Christ and he's using the principle, the known example, and we'll go to 1 Corinthians 15 uh, to hear the same Paul talk about the resurrection of Christ as the foundation of our hope in being resurrected as well. So the same Paul is saying, just as we have known that Christ was raised from the dead, He showed Himself alive after His resurrection to over 500 people on one occasion and otherwise by many infallible proofs. In fact, it is the premise of Peter 
for the message on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where he concludes the message by saying, You took him and with wicked hands you crucified and you slew the Son of God and God raised him up from the dead, a fact of which we are all witnesses and there Peter was referring to himself and the twelve who were with him. Matthias being added to the number after Judas died because of the requirement of twelve witnesses in order for a matter to be conclusively presumed to be true. So the resurrection of Jesus is the foundational doctrine of, upon which our faith lies. So he says, inasmuch as you already know that this is true, let me say to you that the further proof to you that those who have fallen asleep in Christ will be raised just like Jesus was raised and they'll be resurrected and God will bring them with Him, with Christ, when Christ comes again. That's the implied reference. It's not somebody going to heaven for seven years uh, to wait out the storm that has come upon the earth by the, the rampaging of the beast, it's when Jesus is coming back for, look, look, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So they'll come back when? The dead will be raised when? When Christ is coming back, they're to come with Him. And that's the premise here. Now, there are many who would like to ignore the context, but you do so to your own detriment. When you ignore the context, you come up with something that is inherently false. But let's go on. Don't, don't, don't just re- let me rely upon the contextual framework. The actual language says exactly what I'm saying. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Hmm? In other words, it's not my opinion. I have been given this revelation by the Lord Himself. What is the revelation? that we who are alive, latter part of verse 15, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Did you see that? Those of us who are alive, on what occasion? Because people are alive all the time, we're alive today but he's speaking about the return of the Lord and bringing with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. So he says, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. So everything that follows happens on the occasion of the coming of the Lord, 
the Lord is already coming back when this happens. Until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Critically important. What is he saying? He's saying the dead in Christ are going to rise first. When? At the day of the return of the Lord, not seven years before. Jesus will have come by the level of the clouds, just like that's where He was when we last saw Him on the earth, according to Acts 1 verse 11. Two men stood by them in white apparel who said, This same Jesus, who has gone to heaven in the manner in which you have seen Him go up, will so come again in like manner as He went up, which was what? And while they beheld, He was taken up, and a cloud received Him out of their sight. Check it out, Acts 1.11. So when He's coming back from heaven and has reached the level of the clouds, there will be a shout of an archangel and there will be a blast of a trumpet because it announces the return of the king. This is the real Rosh Hashanah. It's, the, it's how a king is announced when he makes his entrance. The page is the archangel, the announcer is the archangel, and the trumpet gets everybody's attention. Right? The whole world stops. So on that day, when the Lord is coming back, when the archangel announces, hear ye, hear ye, or however he announces, and there's this loud trumpet blast and the whole world is riveted on the event of the return of the Lord, in that instant when the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ shall rise. The promise that he's telling, I mean the basis of what he's saying here in 1 Thessalonians is those who have fallen asleep in Christ are not done for, they will live again and their resurrection will be on the, when the Lord is returning visibly to the clouds like it was prophesied in Acts 1 that we'd see Him again in the same manner in which He goes up. When He comes to the level of the clouds where every eye now sees Him, the trumpet blast, the sound of the archangel will awaken the dead, and the dead in Christ shall arise first. Now he says something else here which seals the deal, you can't get around this. He says, those of us who are still alive at that time, those of us who are still alive at that time shall by no means you know what shall by no means means? Ain't going to happen. Shall by no means precede those who have fallen asleep in Christ. In other words, they get to rise first at the time when the Lord has reached the clouds with the sound of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. That's the day of the Lord's return. I mean, I don't know how to make it any plainer. If you choose not to believe this, 
and instead hold on to the foolish doctrine of the rapture, you're going to be disappointed, you're bound to be disappointed. So if you choose to be disappointed, fine, that's your choice, but you have heard the truth. All right, let me read the, let me read the whole of it now, <laughs> because it says you will not be caught up. If you're alive, there's not going to be a rapture, you will not be caught up to meet the Lord in the air before those who have fallen asleep in Christ, in other words, all of the righteous dead whose bodies are now in the grave before they are resurrected. But you will be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, which is the Greek expression for the shortest measure of time, twinkling of an eye, you'll be changed from this mortal body, you'll put on immortality, you'll be caught up together with them. Who's the them again? It's those who have fallen asleep in Christ because they get to rise first. All of this is about the day the Lord returns. So let me read the whole passage now and see if there's any possible way you could come up with a different explanation. I'm rereading and, and concluding to the end of the, of the chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13. This is the principal passage used by proponents of the rapture to support that false, stupid doctrine. Because what it does, you see, is it tells us we're going to get out of here because we can't stand the trials that are to come upon the earth. And that, you see, leaves you as naked and vulnerable and you're going to be here if you happen to be here at the time of, of these things. You'll be thoroughly unprepared. If the teachers of this foolish doctrine, I can't find the words to tell you how ignorant this perspective is, if these proponents of this doctrine truly knew the truth to the contrary, then negligence in failing to prepare you to go through the times that lie ahead would be an unconscionable dereliction of duty, but they're simply deceived. Don't you be deceived along with them. Here's the scripture, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep in Christ, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall arise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord 
in the air. Thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words." Now in the next segment I'm going to delve even further into this and into 1 Corinthians 15 beginning at verse 16 which further talk about the resurrection of the dead and the return of the Lord as one contemporaneous event. I'm Sam Solon, we'll talk then.